for some reason. No matter what, the PowerPoints are not formatting. Uh, the, it's just the way those line up never seems to work. So it's a humbling experience uh, trying to work with PowerPoint, uh, especially when you consider yourself one that, well, at least likes technology or things like that. But um, yes, well, my name is Drew. I know most of you, but some of you I, I don't know. Uh, very excited, uh, honored uh, for the opportunity to bring God's word this morning from Psalm 73. Uh, Mark, Pastor Mark is running, and Bill uh, are at an Olympic triathlon right now, so we can pray for them. Uh, I think they should be in the middle of that. They are, in record time. Under, oh, wow. They're already done. That's amazing. Uh, for me, the only thing better than running an Olympic triathlon is, is not running an Olympic <laughs> triathlon. So or watching someone else run an Olympic triathlon is also uh, way more fun than actually doing an Olympic triathlon. Other, but it's really cool that they're able to do that. Um, so uh, as Eric just read, Psalm 73 here. And so we're titling this, um, A Crisis of Faith in the God of Hope. So A Crisis of Faith, the God of Hope. My second title for looking through this psalm was When Life Gets Slippery. Uh, could be another title for, uh, for this psalm. When Jamie and I were first married, we lived in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Anyone been to Duluth, Minnesota here? Yes. It's quite a wilderness. Uh, they call it the San Francisco of the Midwest. So it's on a hill uh, right at the base of Lake Superior. So it is a beautiful place, uh, June through August. Uh, but it, it truly is. It, it's your, wherever you live uh, in Duluth, if you live anywhere all along the hill, there's just houses and it just overlooks uh, Lake Superior. It's, it's, it's a beautiful place. It's also one of the five coldest cities uh, in the U.S., and uh, which we realized once we got there why the population of Duluth hasn't boomed uh, due to some of those things. But it really is, it's like living in the wilderness kind of. So you're out there, um, even right by where our house was, there, there's a park there called Lincoln Park, and these parks like run down the mountain, uh, or it's not really a mountain, but a hill. It's just like rushing waters and Beautiful, like there's just it, it's like you're in the middle, or kind of in the middle of the wilderness in the midst of the city. But uh, Jamie's parents came to visit once. We go hiking or to a state park in Duluth or something right by there because there's lots of things to see. Uh, I was in a big stage of wearing sambas. Any uh, sambas are those Adidas shoes that are black, the three stripes, and uh, they're they're great for indoor soccer. You won't see them on Patagonia ads for hiking or anything like that. But uh, so we go up there uh, with Jamie's parents. It's beautiful. There's a whole, I don't know what they call those wooden bridges that always like swing when you're on them. And there's some huge gorge that if that broke, uh, that would be it. But we were on those and, and I was along the trails wearing the, the sambas, wasn't thinking much about it. Uh, but there's a rock. Uh, so we're kind of hiking along there. There's just, you know, a small little slope here. We're kind of along the trail. And from what I remember, there's like a, a Kind of a rock there and it's like oh i'll just cut this short go up the rock um i didn't go up the rock i i slipped and immediately just crashed like face first right into this rock just the the i lost my i lost my footing the the, the traction on the sambas uh didn't work out and i just slammed right down the rock and and i I jump up as fast as humanly possible because all I see around me are people just dying in laughter. Um, <laughs> Jamie's parents like rolled over in laughter. 
and I just am completely pretending like it didn't hurt, like I didn't just feel uh, the pain that I felt there. Um, to this day, my father-in-law will still ask me when I go out if I have my helmet. Uh, so he's not, he has not lived that down uh, with me and loves to bring that story up every time I'm there. And I maybe regret telling this story. But um, what it made me think of is, is just, as we look here, uh, Asaph, um, who was a song leader, and some, many people think David may have wrote this, and then Asaph was actually the one that sung it, or the song, but we'll just go with Asaph as far as uh, it says a psalm of Asaph in 73, uh, Psalm 73, but what he's talking about is, is this, he's using this imagery, this picture that his steps had nearly slipped, his feet had almost stumbled, that he was, he was on a path, and all of a sudden he began to slip. And what, whenever you slip, whenever you do it, if you ever felt that your feet slip underneath you, uh, you know that one thing is true, is that you just, you can't control where you're going from there. Uh, you're just out of control. Uh, you're not sure what's going to happen. And, and more likely than not, it's going to bring pain. Uh, it's going to bring tremendous pain to you. And, and what he's saying is that here I was, God was good to Israel, that, to the pure in heart, but there's this time. He's recalling back to this time, this experience that he had uh, in a moment in his life that, that he's describing as he just lost it. His feet were slipping, that, that he didn't see things right, and he was out of, out of control. Um, Psalm 73 is one uh, which I believe all of us can deeply identify. It deals with looking horizontally at those around us, and particularly the harm that people do to other people, the ease that those get away with it seem to have, the injustice of people taken advantage of, the economic effects of the injustice of increasing riches to oppress other people, uh, ones who are completely arrogant and self-absorbed. He's asking, why do they get ahead? Why do they seem to have it all? And so here, just in these first few verses of Psalm 73, we see doubt. Doubt of God, envy, despair, anger, and all of these things come like a flood into Asaph's heart and mind and how he's seen the world and where he's at. And so here we see his crisis of faith. And God, I hope, so this morning, I want to look at two things with this is Regarding crisis of faith, what is it? What, is it? what does it mean to have a crisis of faith? And then second, how do we deal with it? How, do, how does he deal with it? So I think this is not just um, descriptive. Descriptive meaning this isn't just Asaph's story, merely for Asaph and they're there, but it's actually prescriptive for us that um, there's a lot that we can learn from in what we see here about who God is and how he brings us back uh, when we begin to slip. So Asaph's big, big struggle is not primarily here, why do bad things happen to good people? That's, some people do deeply struggle with that. That is not his primary struggle here. Primarily what he's saying is, why do all the good things seem to happen to bad people? Uh, so he's not saying why, simply, why do bad things happen to good people? But he's saying, why do all the good things seem to happen to bad people? And here I am trying to follow God trying to live for him, but why do these people seem to be at such ease? And here, I know nothing but struggle and trial and, and mocking, uh, them mocking me I, I, in despair. And so it fills him 
with envy in verse 3. Envy meaning he longs to be like them. He's saying, I was envious of these people. I long to be like them. I long to live my life like them. He just can't comprehend the injustice happening. See, they're filled with violence. They mock God. They oppress others. And yet, they're the ones whose tables are filled with food. They're the ones whose bank accounts exceed FDIC insurance. Uh, they care nothing for each other and, or other people. And these are the people who prosper. These are the people who get ahead in life. And it leads him to doubt. When we say crisis, it really is this true crisis. In verse 13, he says, all in vain. vain. Vain meaning vanity, vanity meaning worthlessness. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. Is following God worth it? Is God silent? Does God even care? Um, I think one of the most incredible things about the Bible, and particularly when we read the Psalms, you know, sometimes when you are in just a, a season of discouragement or despair or depression or just trying to figure out life, we don't always, you know, turn to, to Romans 3 and dig into the deep, uh, deep theological truths that Paul's going to lay out. A lot of times what we turn to are things like the Psalms, the people who are just expressing all of their emotions and all the weight that they feel, all the d despair of life, and it's, it's a gift to us. Same thing if, if you've ever read the book of Lamentations, uh, just a book of laments, and a people, people who are following God that were struggling with the goodness of God. And the Bible is full of those people. And it's something so beautiful because it's full of people, in a sense, who are at one time or another are questioning God's goodness. It's filled with people that have a common human core experience of following God, of questioning His goodness, of questioning His love, of questioning where God is there. But it's also full of the same people that are then reminded, who are renewed in His love and His grace and His mercy and God's comfort and His peace and His hope. But if you've ever dealt with doubt or you've had a crisis of faith, you're trying to make sense of it all like Asaph, or it's just a wearisome task, as he says, to me, all of this, he's just worn out by seeing it all. It feels like everything's kind of crushing down on him as we read here. Um, it should be incredibly comforting that those feelings and experiences are not uncommon. Uh, Apostle Paul wrote that he was perplexed, meaning confused or doubting, but not in despair in 2 Corinthians 4.8. The guy who wrote half of the New Testament saying, I'm perplexed, but not in despair. But, but you see the weight that, that he had. The book of Jude, verse 22. This is in the Bible, but it's often not talked about. It says, be merciful to those who doubt that God's commandment, and, and the reason that's written is because there are those who are doubting, uh, that there are people who are struggling with God's goodness or where God is in the midst of whatever, whatever is happening in his life. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. So, you know, if we've got it all put together, if we're always on the mountaintop, if life is just an adventure all the time with God, that we're just, you know, continually ascending, uh, it's just not a true experience of those we encounter in the Bible. That, that there are periods or seasons in every life because we live in a fallen world. Uh, do we know what it means to be, as it says, cast down, to be in despair? 
to be discouraged, to question the goodness of God. Um, the problem of evil and suffering also, it's a deep struggle for many who are skeptics, you know, those who would say, I don't, I don't even believe. You know, how can God, a good God, allow so much suffering? See, this is a real experience for those who believe in God and those who don't believe in God. This, the problem of seeing suffering in the midst of everything that we experience and when we see it all around the world and we hear of it in the news everywhere. And so we see it all around. See, we want justice. We want the wrongs righted. We want to be vindicated. And Asaph is saying that I don't see that happening. And therefore, this whole following God thing is in vain. It's worthless. Is this, is this all worthless? Because in the here and now, I see no fruit of that. I see nothing. But me trying to follow God, and everyone else seems to be getting ahead. It's as though God is silent that he doesn't care. It's all vanity or worthless. The Apostle Paul speaks to vanity. Uh, I don't know if you all remember 1 Corinthians 15. Apostle Paul uh, was Saul. He used to persecute Christians. He used to put them in jail. He was all about um, a zealous against Christians. And then God meets him on a road in Damascus. His life has changed forever. He becomes the one that writes half of the New Testament. Uh, but he wrote in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, we just went through 1 Corinthians a little bit ago, but he talks about the resurrection of, of, of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus. And what Paul writes in verse 13, he says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and, and so is your faith. And then he says 18, then those who've also fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If, verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ. We've all, we of all people are most to be pitied. So we think about vanity, worthlessness, that, that is this all worth, worthless? We see Asaph struggling with that because he sees that there. But then again, Paul is writing and he's saying, if, Jesus, if this isn't true, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, if this all didn't happen, if the resurrection didn't happen, if we have no hope, apart, if, if we have no hope after this life, he's saying, it's all in vain. It is all worthless. That we should eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die. And that's it. And all we have is to maximize while we're here. And so Paul is saying this, this is in vain if it's, if it's not true. It's all worthless. Following God, following after Christ, following something that we claim to believe. If it ends up being a lie, he's saying it's, it's worthless. And so in the depths of this crisis we see with Asaph, he says, is God good? But also we see, is it true? Because that matters deeply in the, way that, in the way that we turn around in the midst of it. That we wonder if God's good, but then we also have to wonder, is God true? Did, did this all happen? Did, does this all make sense? Is God true? And it, it really comes down to that central question as we look at um, everything around us as we look just horizontally and we don't look vertically, it's so easy to conclude that this is it. That there's nothing transcendent. Transcendent meaning completely other. Something outside the material world. And say is, Paul would agree, if that's it, that's it. We shouldn't be doing this. But what if it is true? What if Jesus did rise from the dead? And what if there is resurrection of life? And what if 
what we just see internally and what we look at horizontally isn't all that there is to life? What if we could see vertically? What if God has revealed himself to us? That, that we don't ascend to God, uh, we don't know God uh, just from within ourselves, but that God has descended into us. That God has shown us who he is and he's told us who he is, not only through the scriptures, but through the person, the work of Jesus, through the story, the Bible, through Asaph and the psalm here. And so if we simply look horizontally and we fail to look vertically, we also have a hard time finding answers. You know, if there's no transcendent God, transcendence meaning someone outside this material world, why should we seek to love one another? Why does it follow that, that there should be justice? What, how do wrongs get righted? How is there ever payback? How is there ever retribution for all the injustice in the world? And so, like Asaph, we can put conditions on God of our making. God is good, then I'll prosper. If God is good, I'll be happy. If God is good, then my life should be easy. If God is good, I won't get sick or have chronic illness. If God is good, he'll give me the desires of my heart, what I want. My sincerity should be rewarded. So the, the crisis of faith here is a struggle to see anything beyond the here and now. And it brings about a hardness of our own hearts. And we're going to see that with Asaph here because we're going to look at how do we deal with the crisis of faith? How do we deal with doubt? We struggle. Um, and crisis of faith doesn't always have to be, why do I, as everyone else get ahead? Some, some of it may be um, just real struggles with hypocrisy within the church that you've seen. Or maybe you grew up a certain way and you saw this and you had all these people who claimed to believe one thing and, and yet they, you found out they didn't. And it's like, is this even true? <laughs> All these people who I looked up to and who I respected, is it, they, were they just living a lie or is this true? It could be you've grown up in a place where there is true oppression against Christians and there's true persecution happening if you're a Christian and the way to get ahead is just simply to deny this and to live a different way. And life would be so much easier if you did that. But here's the shift that happens between verse 16 and 17. There's a huge turn, a change of heart of biblical proportions, you could say. Uh, look at verse 16. Asaph says, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. You see, something happens. There's a shift that happens to Asaph when he goes into the sanctuary of God. We don't know exactly what this is. So it could be he had a moment of uh, the glory of God where God revealed himself to him, similar to Isaiah or, or Paul caught up, says he's caught up to the third heaven. It could be something drastic that. It could be that he went into the sanctuary with uh, God's people, Israel, there. And he saw them worshiping and God just used it to stir his heart that he suddenly saw. But he said he went into the sanctuary of God and there's a shift that happens where he shifts from envy uh, towards them and he changes his whole perspective here, uh, there. So I want to look at three things that changes with Asaph here in this shift after ver between verse 16 and 17 uh, and, and then through the, the rest of the psalm. Uh, three things that, that shift. His interpretation, his perspective changes about all of these as he looks not only horizontally or internally, but vertically to God. Uh, it changes ourselves, our view of ourselves, 
our view of others, and our view of God. Uh, his, his view of himself changes, his view of others changes, his view of God changes, right, as we look at this, this second part. Asaph goes to blaming God to seeing his own hardness of heart. Look at verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. What is he, how does he now describe himself? I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. What changes in him about his perspective? He's acknowledging that he's not neutral. That his heart was not neutral towards God. When he's questioning God, he's starting to doubt his own doubts. Um, his confidence in his own interpretation of how he's viewing the things around him completely changes. And he's acknowledging when he says, I was like a beast towards you, that he, that his, he now sees that his heart was incredibly hard towards the things of God. You see, no one is neutral towards God is what the scriptures would teach. That, that none of us, that no one's born uh, in this world just kind of neutral towards God. There's no neutrality in, in how we think about him. Um, the central claim of the Bible is that we have been, we are fallen back from, back into Genesis 3, that we are born sinful, and therefore we can't see everything, we can't rightly interpret everything uh, there, and that God is infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, and that we are finite, that God is creator and we are creation, um, and therefore, you know, wouldn't it follow that our, in our finiteness as a creation, that we couldn't always comprehend one who's infinite? Wouldn't it follow that we couldn't always make sense of everything that God was trying to do or what, what he may be doing? Tim Keller always writes that, he always says, just because we don't have a good reason for our suffering doesn't mean God doesn't have a good reason for our suffering. But it's true. Because I can't see it doesn't mean that there isn't one. And if we really believe that God has revealed himself to us, that there is a transcendent God, then it, then it gives us a little bit more to say, I don't, I don't know all the answers. And there's a high chance that my own heart, my own interpretation, my own mind may not be as neutral as I think it is. That I become hard. I become like those people there. And that's what happens. When we long to be like someone else, we become like them. You know, if you go to whatever concert you go to, I think Taylor Swift was in town recently. Uh, I think I was at Chick-fil-A and Mason the day of that concert. And I saw all these people just like decked out with Taylor Swift, all the cars decorated, everything. And you do see, you just see, you're, you get caught up. You want to be like that thing. You, you want to be part of it. You want to join into it. And that, what, what Asa is saying is, I wanted to be like these people. I wanted to be at ease. I wanted to have all the riches and wealth and all those things at this point. And so he became like them, but in that moment, his heart was turning hard towards God. I was like a beast towards you, he says. John Calvin says this, he says, without the knowledge of self, there's no knowledge of God. Without the knowledge of God, there's no knowledge of self. Circular reasoning, or whatever, it's kind of circular. But what he's saying is these two things are so bound together that I can't know myself apart from knowing God. And, and I can't know God apart from knowing myself. And that there is deep mystery in this, these things, but that God has revealed who we are. And I can't truly know who I am apart from God showing me who we are, who, who I am. But I also can't truly know God unless I know who I am. And so we see God at work in this, 
bonding there between knowing ourselves and knowing God, and that shifts. When we encounter Jesus, when you've had, when you believe in him and we turn from your sins, when, you, when we repent and turn to, to our hope and faith in the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, there's a change in our view of ourselves. Uh, view of others changes here. Those who mock and oppose God, they are the ones in slippery places. Uh, now, it's all temporary. You see that in verse 2, he says, but as for me, my feet have almost doubled, my steps nearly slipped. In verse, um, verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. There's, there's a dramatic shift that happens. Suddenly it's not Asaph that's slipping now. It's those, it's, it's those who, are, who are living in life as though God doesn't exist and, and oppressing other people and we see, we see that. So Jesus frees us from looking around at what everyone has or is doing compared to what you have or what you're doing, the job that other people have that I don't have, that I should have, the kids that other people have that I have that I shouldn't have, it, it, the, the title that, I have, that they have that I should have. Uh, we look at, I do, we do it all the time. If you scroll Instagram, you probably feel that at some level. The people who made $36,000 in 30 minutes uh, and was going to show you how to do it too, uh, you know. It's but we see it everywhere. Like, oh, what? Well, I am just a complete failure uh, because I, you know, at life because we're we're looking at everyone around us and where we're supposed to be and where I'm supposed to be and where they're supposed to be or how popular uh, that person is versus I am or you know this person doesn't like me but they like them and I want to be like them and and we just we don't see the mercy of God and the grace of God who has come to us and, know, and, and we're longing to be like them so it's incredibly hard for, to, to love someone that you just long to be like. It's incredibly hard to long for them to experience the grace and mercy of God uh, if, if you long to be like them. So that, that his view of others shifts. And what happens? He's saying that the reality of a fallen world and the reality of injustice that that it's not just the here and now that matter, that all of history is in a line. It's linear, it's going somewhere, that there's an end in sight. And that end, according to the scriptures, is judgment. And, and that's, uh, you know, Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. And, and Asaph gets into that. He's saying this is what happens in the end, that there, there, there is a reality of judgment. But the whole... Um, the depth of the love of God is most seen in his rescue from his judgment of his wrath. The, the whole message of the gospel is that I am accepted by God, not by anything I can bring to God or by what I've done for God. It's not by my merit. It's simply by God's mercy because what God did, he treated Jesus uh, like he didn't deserve so that he could treat us like we don't deserve. Jesus takes our sin on the cross, through the resurrection, and then rises again. And what does he do with us? We get his perfect life. We get freedom and forgiveness in spite of how we live. And so it shifts from him just longing to be like these other people to, to having almost a pity, a compassion for them. But he's also saying, he's fully acknowledging, I was on the way to be just like them. <laughs> I was the one who has hardness of heart. I was the one. So it's not a, it'd be easy to read this and say, they're going to get what's coming to them. But that's not at all what he's saying here. He's saying that there will be judgment. 
that there is wrath, that we do stand before God, but in Christ, in God, there's mercy, in God, there's nearness and restoration, and I long for those around me to know him. So a good test of our hearts towards others who don't believe or who would have different values, I think is just what makes us most angry. Is there a deep longing after encountering God to see others know him? Do we have compassion for the poor and the vulnerable? Do we see every person as made in the image of God, no matter how much we may disagree with them in the way that they're living or what, what they would be doing, that we're not envying them? See, there's just a different characteristic there when we start to see the end, uh, when we see something that it, it's not just the here and now, but there's something coming. And that's the, whole, that's, that's the hope that we find when we talk about the hope of God, the God of hope. Finally, we see Asaph's view of God changes. Uh, here, Asaph is reminding us, God is with us, and the greatest good in all of life is to be near to God. That's, that's what he's saying in the second part. God is with us, and the greatest good in all of life is to be near to him, that God came near to me, and that I can be near to God. He said, verse 24, you hold my right hand. Verse 25, you guide me with your counsel. Even just that, he's acknowledging that meaning does not, meaning in life, purpose in life does not have to be created, manufactured by us. It comes from God who made us and made us for a purpose. So he's saying, you, you guide me with your counsel. You're telling me how I'm meant to live. You're telling me who I am uh, fully, that I might have life to the full. Verse 25, there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. He's saying, I, I could lose everything and still have you. And that's the testimony of many people throughout the history of the church. People who've lost their jobs, their family, uh, their, their health, everything taken. And yet they'd say, nothing on earth do I desire beside you. When, when all of that is stripped away, do we long most and foremost for God? Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life in John 11 said, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Say not, God is my strength, my portion forever. It's a, this acknowledgement, we are incredibly weak. We're not as strong as we think we are. We don't see things as rightly as we, as we want to. And God is strength, my portion forever. When we look back towards the cross, the resurrection, we look forward to the future, the promise of Christianity, the promise of hope, is that this world isn't all that there is, that we will be with God forever in new heavens, new earth, that we are resurrected bodies, that there'll be a life with no sickness, uh, no illness, no sin, no sorrow, no suffering, life with God forever in a, a world remade. And that Jesus rising from the dead and calling a people to himself throughout all the ages among all the world, he's, what he's doing is gathering people changed not by what they've done, by what he's done for them. And when we see that, we say, what else do we have except God? And that's Asaph's confession. I was brutish. I was like a beast towards you. I have nothing else. I have nothing in myself to offer to you. But he has come near to me. He holds my right hand. Hope loves to hold hands. Uh, many of you know my daughter Hope. Uh, here, but I just, I was reminded of that even yesterday. It's like all the time, whenever we're walking, just, she'll just grab a hand. And it's just, there's something so incredible about that imagery. If, if you have kids or 
if you don't have kids, but just that thought of um, one, there's safety, there's security, there's rest in the midst of everything else could be going on, but just that knowing that God holds us. So I want to end with a quote uh, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous British preacher uh, on this psalm. And he says this. He says, I sometimes think that the very essence of the whole Christian position and the secret of a successful spiritual life is just to realize two things. They are in these first two verses. Truly God is good to Israel, even to as such as are clean of heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. You see the era he lived in, nigh. Uh, in other words, I must have complete, absolute confidence in God and no confidence in myself. As long as you and I are in the position in which we worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, all is well with us. That is to be truly Christian. On one hand, utter, utter absolute confidence in God, and on the other hand, no confidence in myself and what I may do. If I take that view of myself, it means that I shall always be looking to God, and in that position, I shall never fail. That's so instructive, I thought, is that's the essence of belief, is that we acknowledge there's nothing that I can bring to God that would make God approve of me. But we also acknowledge that God loves to give his love and his mercy to all who would come. And we are kept by him. And this isn't a lack of confidence in the sense of um, just beating oneself up. We are adopted, we are loved, we are forgiven. It's just saying that I have nothing that I can bring to God. Those two things, God, complete confidence in all that God has done for me in this. No confidence in what I think I could bring merit that would merit God's favor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. Uh, these words of desperation, uh, words of crisis, words that I think at one time or other all of us may have experienced. And uh, we thank you for the hope that's in them, the turn that you bring, that you don't leave us uh, when we are hard of heart, but you promise your grace, you promise restoration, you guide us, you lead us, you hold us, and you will bring us to glory. And we rest in that hope, and we pray that we'd be able to see uh, not only the here and now, but, but also trust that you are doing something that you will uh, renew and restore all that is wrong and broken, and that you are with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Drew. That was very encouraging. So despite my best effort to stay on script, my scattered brain had the best of me this morning. So I had neglected the financial update that we were supposed to do earlier. So I wanted to give some time for Bill to come up here to share a 